You're listening to the Iliadic Sappho Diaries by Mars Tarasenko. Hello, this is Mars Tarasenko. Welcome back to the Iliadic Sappho Diaries podcast. Um, this weekend was a little hectic. <laughs> I lost my voice, so um, today I I'm had most of it back, but it might go out a little bit here or there, so bear with me on that one. And in other news, in other news, we got a microphone. Um, Say thank you, Dad, Papa Mars. (laughs) Um, Thank you for this microphone. I got it for my birthday, and I'm going to be able to create some lovely, lovely podcast episodes with it and hopefully read my poetry and post it onto my Instagram, which is Poetry on the Planet Mars. Um, So shameless self-plug go follow that um today we're going to be back to our regularly scheduled programming um i'm going to be reading from the iliadic sappho diaries explaining my reasoning behind the poems the myth behind the poems the quotes behind the poems all that fun jazz um so i hope you guys are ready for some fun poetry readings and some fun essay readings and mythology readings and it's going to be overall a great time so i hope you enjoy so i'm gonna start with poem seven because usually what happens when i record a podcast episode is by the end of the episode i'm like okay mars you can do another poem let's let's do it i do the poem i don't do the poem justice so i'm gonna try to start each episode with a poem that I ended the last episode just so I can give that poem justice. So this is poem seven. She, who from the tragedy of Uranus has risen, the sea foam tickling her ferocity. She, who has stricken me with a firm blow, let her smite me so for speaking my disdain, for my grief will never subdue. She, Surmises, I will never relent. Down I fling my body, but my soul searches for you, my closest companion. Our bond bound within the histories, inquiries into our truest nature. So poem seven is similar to poem six in the sense where it talks about Aphrodite, but in this one, not only does it tell the origin story of Aphrodite, which according to Hesiod was born of the sea foam from Uranus's castration, it also shows her as the antagonist in Achilles' life for taking his love away from him. He expresses this woe without concern for her possibly smiting him. This is similar to fragment 130 in Anne Carson's If Not Winter on page 265, where Eros, the melter of limbs, now again stirs Sappho, sweet, bitter, unmanageable creature who steals in, in which an immortal meddles in the love life of mortals. So... In the American Journal of Philology, there is an article titled Foam-Born Aphrodite and the Mythology of Transformation by William Hansen, and I will read just a little bit of it to you guys. 
In his account of the birth of Aphrodite, Hesiod tells how Cronos castrated his father, Uranos, and threw the severed genitals into the sea. The narrator envisions Cronos waiting in ambush upon the mainland, or from another perspective, upon his mother Gaia, with a sickle in his hand. When Uranos descends, stretching himself out over Gaia in order to engage in sexual intercourse, Cronos takes hold of his father's genitals with his left hand, cuts them off with his adamantine sickle, and casts them behind him. As the severed organ hurls through the air, blood falls from it onto the land below, impregnating Gaia with several kinds of offspring. It settles finally upon the waters of the sea, in time foam issuing from the organs that surrounds it, and within the foam a girl coalesces. Making her way to the land, she passes by the island of Kithra, located off the southern coast of the Peloponnese, and reaches distant Cyprus where she emerges onto dry land. The circumstances of her birth, Hesiod explains, accounts for her epithet fond of genitals, just as her particular route is commemorated in the epithets Kitharian and Cyprus-born, which link her to particular sites. She can be said to have been born on Cyprus because it was there that she emerged from her foam womb, the matrix in which she developed. Great Uranos came bringing on night, and around Gaia he spread out himself in his longing for love, and was stretched out in every direction. From ambush, his son reached out with his left hand, and his right hand took the huge sickle, long and sawtoothed, and furiously cut off the genitals of his own father and threw them backward to be borne behind him. But they did not escape his hand without effect, for all the drops of blood that rushed out, Gaia received, and in due time, she brought forth the powerful Erinyes and the great giants, shining in their armor and with long spears in their hands, and the nymphs whom they call Mile and the boundless earth. Now, after he cut off the genitals with adamant and cast them down from the mainland to the stormy sea, they were borne along the sea for a long time, and around them white foam arose from the immortal flesh, and in it a girl grew. First she approached holy Kithra, and from there she reached sea-washed Cyprus. Out of the sea the reverend and beautiful goddess stepped, and round about grass grew beneath her slender feet." Her gods and men called Aphrodite because she grew in foam, Cytherian because she reached Kithera, and also Cyprus-born because she was born on stormy Cyprus, and fond of genitals because she came forth from genitals. In this passage, the poet manifestly strives to bring Aphrodite into associations with as many aspects of her cult as possible, while at the same time maintaining a dramatically coherent narrative. Aspects of the goddess that the narrator acknowledges explicitly includes explicitly the name Aphrodite itself. She develops an aphros, foam, slaver, froth, sperm, and her epithet, fond of genitals. She is born from a severed sexual organ, which suggests also her role as a goddess of sexuality. Her epithet, Kitharia, she passes near Kithera, and her epithet, Kiprogenia, she comes ashore at Cyprus. Aspects of the goddess that are possibly signaled here implicitly are her role as the divinity of the sea, she is born at sea, and her title Aphrodite Urna, Aphrodite Dar of Uranus, or Celestial Aphrodite, as opposed to Aphrodite Pandemos, Common Aphrodite. So the narrative teems with references to different aspects of Aphrodite. 
An element of considerable importance in this narrative is foam. The goddess originates in it, and she gets her name from it. The reason why the myth brings Aphrodite and foam into a significant relationship is doubtless, because there's popular etymology with her name was understood to contain the word Aphros. The myth provides the Asian for the name in the form of a biographical detail. Because she arose in foam, she is named foam plus something. Um, there is a lot more to this article. I would highly recommend you guys go check it out. It's on JSTOR. Um, it's through the John Hopkins University Press, um, through the American Journal of Philology. Um, and it is, let's see, does it have a DOI number? I cannot find it, but if I find it, I'll be sure to post it on my Instagram, which is Poetry on the Planet Mars. Um, go ahead and check that out, and I will also post this article there. Dear Mother, For Thetis, silver-footed, attempts to comfort... Upon the light of the sun, he is in heaviness, but sorrow has befallen, and her help, if anything, exacerbates the tortuous winds. Crystal in her cave dazzle as they crack. He is no longer with us, as voices wail stories of his life. In poem 8, Achilles' immortal mother Thetis comes down from Olympus in order to comfort Achilles and leads the Nereids in lamenting Patroclus' death. I use the Iliadic phrase, upon the light of the sun he is in heaviness, to emphasize Patroclus' condition while also using a sapphic simile, such as in fragment 47 on page 99, where Eros shook my mind like a mountain of wind falling on oak trees. I also use details to emphasize the setting, the crystal cave, and the sound of the cracking stones, in order to truly encompass what it feels like to lament in the cave with the Nereids. Poem 9 Hector the Betrayer Give me his armor, give me my lover, both who are rightfully mine and give up your shame, or get a face full of gravel. So, poem nine, I use humor um, that I oftentimes perceive to be in Sappho's works. Um, once again, like similar to Now Again, which is seen repeatedly throughout If Not Winter, I use parentheses to add a humorous tinge to the poem where Achilles threatens Hector to get a face full of gravel. So the parentheses are around or get a face full of gravel. Um, <laughs> I showed this poem to my professor and he thought it was hilarious. He wrote like nice next to it. And I was like, haha, I, I did something right here. <laughs> Fragment 10. Eros and Thanatos have conspired against me. In poem 10, I reference two deities, Eros and Thanatos. Eros is referenced multiple times in Sappho as this carnal, primal force of sexual desire, but also establishes the dangers around love. 
Thanatos is death with a capital D, which I joke conspired together with Eros to torment Achilles. This is inherently in the style of Sappho because not only does it name drop the deities, but it also emphasizes how the immortals meddle in mortals' lives. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on Eros, the god of love, um, from Britannica website. Um, this is fact-checked by the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And basically, in Greek religion, Eros is the god of love. In the Theogony of Hesiod, um, Eros was a primeval god, son of chaos, the original primeval emptiness of the universe. But later tradition made him the son of Aphrodite, goddess of sexual love and beauty, by either Zeus, the king of the gods, Ares, god of war and of battle, or Hermes, divine messenger of the gods. Eros is a god not simply of passion, but also of fertility. His brother was Anteros, the god of mutual love, who is sometimes described as his opponent. The chief associates of Eros were Pothos and Himeros, longing and desire. Later writers assume that existence of a number of erotes, like the Roman, several versions of the Roman Amor, um, in Alexandrian poetry, he degenerated into a mischievous child. In archaic art, he was represented as a beautiful winged youth, but tended to be made younger and younger until by the Hellenistic period, he was an infant. His chief cult center was in Thespiae in Voetia, where Erotidia was celebrated. He also celebrated, he also shared a sanctuary with Aphrodite in the north wall of the Acropolis in Athens. Um, also see Cupid. So Cupid is essentially the Roman god um, version of Eros, um, also known as Amor. Um, so Cupid, the ancient Roman god of love in all its varieties, the counterpart of the Greek god Eros and the equivalent of Amor in Latin poetry. According to myth, Cupid was the son of Mercury, the winged messenger of the gods, and Venus, the goddess of love. He often appeared as a winged infant carrying a bow and a quiver of arrows, whose wounds inspired love or passion in his every victim. He was sometimes portrayed, portrayed wearing armor like that of Mars, the god of war, perhaps to suggest the ironic parallels between warfare and romance or to symbolize the invincibility of love. Although some literature portrayed Cupid as callous and careless, he was generally viewed as beneficent or on account of the happiness he imparted to both couples, immortal and mortal. At the worst, he was considered mischievous in his matchmaking, this mischief often directed by his own mother, Venus. On one tale, her uh, machinations backfired when she used Cupid in revenge on the mortal Psyche, only to have Cupid fall in love and succeed in making Psyche his immortal wife. So, since this podcast is basically established on tangents, we're going to go on a little tangent about Sisyphus. So... Oh, I lost. <laughs> I lost my website. Give me a second. Oh, no. Okay, here we go. So this is about the myth of Sisyphus. So Sisyphus is probably more famous for his punishment in the underworld than for what he did in his life. According to the Greek myth, Sisyphus is condemned to roll a rock up the top of a mountain, only to have the rock roll back down to the bottom every time he reaches the top. The gods were wise. And then in the book by Albert Camus, Camus suggests in perceiving that an eternity of futile labor is a hideous punishment. There are a number of stories, ones which are not mutually exclusive, that explain how Sisyphus come, came to earn his punishment in the underworld. 
According to one story, Zeus carried off Aegina, a mortal woman who was the daughter of Asopus. Sisyphus witnessed this cap kidnapping in his home city of Corinth. Sisyphus agreed to inform Asopus as to who had kidnapped Aegina if Asopus would give the citadel of Corinth a fresh water spring. In making this deal and bearing witness against Zeus, Sisyphus, Sisyphus, oh my god, say Sisyphus five times fast and see how well you do. Sisyphus earned the wrath of the gods while earning earthly wealth and happiness for himself and his people. Another story tells how Sisyphus enchained the spirit of death so that during death's imprisonment, no human being died. Naturally, when the gods freed death, his first victim was Sisyphus. It is also said that Sisyphus told his wife not to offer any of the traditional burial rites when he died. When he arrived in the underworld, he complained to Hades that his wife had not observed these rites and was granted permission to return to Earth to chastise her. Once granted this second lease on life, Sisyphus refused to return to the underworld and lived to a ripe old age before returning to the underworld a second time to, his in to endure his eternal punishment. So there's a lot more. Um, I'm currently on the spark notes because this is on the Myth of Sisyphus Albert Camus book. Um, but that's just like the very beginning of the summary of the book. Um, and I would highly recommend giving it a read. I absolutely loved it. I love the Myth of Sisyphus. It's so interesting. Um, and if you guys haven't heard the song by Andrew Bird called Sisyphus, you're missing out, to be fully honest. It's a great song. So I would highly recommend going to take a listen to that. Poem 11. He has perished. Lacked my fighting strength, I should have defended him. I shouldn't have listened to him. I want him, his nostos, to me. So poem 11 references Achilles regretting having agreed to let Patroclus wear his armor. Um, and this is more of a grief fragment, um, which reminded me of some quotes from the Song of Achilles. So I'm on Goodreads right now, and I'm going to read some quotes from the Song of Achilles regarding grief. Um, one is, I could recognize him by touch alone, by smell. I would know him blind. By the way his breaths came and his feet struck the earth, I would know him in death at the end of the world. And another one that I think continues to that one is a great segue. And perhaps it is the greater grief, after all, to be left on earth when another is gone. So an ancient Greek word that I used here is nostos. Um, and it's a theme used in ancient Greek literature, which includes an epic hero returning home, often by sea. In ancient Greek society, it was deemed a high level of heroism or greatness for those who managed to return. This journey is usually very extensive and includes being shipwrecked in an unknown location and going through certain trials to test the hero. The return is not only about the returning home physically, but also focuses on the hero retaining or elevating their identity and status upon arrival. The theme of Nostos is brought to life in Homer's The Odyssey, where the main hero, Odysseus, tries to return home after battling in the Trojan War. Odysseus is challenged by many temptations, such as the Sirens and the Lotus Eaters. If Odysseus had given in to these temptations, it would have meant certain death and thus failing to return home. Nostos is used today in many forms of literature and in movies. 
and also in my poem. (laughs) Poem 12. The water, wave, broken in tears. So the poem 12, um, if one could even call it a poem, it's more of a typical sapphic fragment that at first makes no sense, but one can read a lot of meaning in just a few words. So you can go, the water, okay, wave, broken in tears. So the water is this big wave coming at you. Um, an overwhelming life event, aka death of Patroclus broken in tears. Achilles feels broken. He is physically in tears, but also he tears at his hair um, in his grief in book 18 in the Richard Lattimore translation. So there is a lot of possibilities and a lot of power behind each individual word that comprises his entire fragment. Poem 13, Lament My Child. Poem 13 is where Thetis tells Achilles to lament, which I follow in the style of Sappho's Fragment 69 on page 141 that is one word long and it's just sinful. That's the word. The word is sinful, not like adjective describing the poem. It is just the word sinful. Um, And then also to describe what lamentation is, a lament or lamentation is a passionate expression of grief, often in music, poetry, or song form. The grief is often, most often born of regret or mourning. Laments can also be expressed in a verbal manner in which participants lament about something that they regret or someone that they have lost, and they are usually accompanied by wailing, moaning, and or crying. Laments constitute, constitute some of the oldest forms of writing, and examples exist across all human cultures. My son, I must lose you soon. Your kleos will be your end. Poem 14 shows that Achilles will get his glory, but that will be the cause of his early demise, much to the dismay of his mother, Thetis. The word kleos that I used is an ancient Greek word often translated to renown or glory. It is related to the English word loud and carries the implied meaning of what others hear about you. A Greek hero earns kleos through accomplishing great deeds. According to Gregory Nagy, besides the meaning of glory, kleos can also be used as the medium, in this case the ancient Greek poetry or song which conveys glory. Kleos is invariably transferred from father to son. The son is responsible for carrying on and building up the glory of the father. Kleos is a common theme in Homer's epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the main example in the latter being that of Odysseus and his son Telemachus, who is concerned that his father may have died a pathetic and pitiable death at sea rather than a reputable and gracious one in the battle. The Iliad is about gaining ultimate Kleos on the battlefields of Troy, while the Odyssey is the ten-year quest of Odysseus's nostos, or return journey. Telemachus fears that he has been deprived of Kleos. This links to hereditary Kleos. So I think I'm going to wrap it up for today. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. Um, 
it's really making me excited that people are excited about this podcast um i really hope you guys continue to enjoy listening to it and interacting with it um and while you're at it follow me on my poetry instagram which is poetry on the planet mars with an underscore in between each word i know it's a really long username but i wanted my username to be a little a little funky a little unique so we we made it that um Again, this is the Iliadic Sappho Diaries podcast. Uh, Let me know if you guys have any feedback for me. I would love to integrate it into future episodes. Thank you. Bye.